This program was produced at KUSP Central Coast Public Radio and KUSP.org. And this is the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Welcome. So I wanted to pick up again with the topic that we've been visiting periodically during these economically challenged times, and that is wealth in America, how we define it, what we do with it, what it or the lack of it does to us. And I was hoping to get some dissenting views today. I mean dissenting in the sense of uh, departing from the mainstream idea that wealth equals money and that's what we want. So I went and got myself a Buddhist and a spread-the-wealth-around, share-and-share-alike collectivist. The former is Steve Stuckey, co-abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center, and the latter is Patch Adams, the real guy, not uh, Robin Williams. He is a do-gooder doctor, jester, and activist who thinks we should all be giving it away to each other, by which he means money and wealth. If uh, Joe the Plumber thinks Barack Obama is a socialist, well, he would damn well blow a gasket over Patch Adams, which, come to think of it, would be a sight worth paying to see. Well, you do not have to pay to listen to these interviews. Just stick around. All right, now for part one of today's show, a conversation with Steve Stuckey, co-abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center. You might have heard Steve and me talking here on these airwaves last year during the big fires in uh, Ventana Wilderness in Big Sur. Steve described how he and four other Zen monks saved the Zen Center's Tassajara Monastery from the flames. And uh, when it came around to this year's crisis, the economic one, I thought of him again. I thought he might have an interesting perspective on uh, questions of value and wealth. And so I met up with him at Green Gulch Farm, Zen Center's organic farm and retreat in Marin County, to talk about what I called Buddhist economics. How does one, one address you uh, at Zen Center? Um, is it Abbot Steve? Is it Abbot Steve works. <laughs> well, Abbot yeah. Steve, thank you for yeah. participating in this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, when you came uh, to Zen Center uh, initially in 1972, you gave up all your possessions, or most of them. Before that, yeah. Before yeah, that? During the year before that. Uh-huh. Basically, I gave up everything that I couldn't carry on my back, yeah. And that included what kinds of things? Well, a lot of uh, photography equipment, a whole library of books, a whole library of uh, records and recordings, clothing, not too much furniture. I didn't really have much furniture. Uh, um, motorcycle, musical instruments. How did that, yeah. f- how did that feel? Well, it was uh, just the the perfect thing to do, <laughs> <laughs> and it felt very light, actually, and freeing. Mm. And um, uh, so there was, uh, I'd say, a little bit poignant or painful with some of the things, you know, and and some things I just I turned over to people to take care of and use, and and uh, later on I heard, you know, what happened that my. My girlfriend had given my ex-girlfriend had given <laughs> my guitar to her brother, and he was using it in coffee houses in Chicago and so forth. So things like that. Oh, well, that's good. You know, mm. other people are using these mm. things. So, mm. so hey. there's a sense in which um, possessions are uh, ones uh, are kind of on loan. You know, not really, not really one's own, but are 
as something that one takes care of for a while and then then you can release them and someone else can uh, benefit. And, and then for for a period of time, I, I guess, I take it you lived a life of um, a monk? Well, uh, in some senses. I, I, I thought of myself as a spiritual pilgrim, traveled around, um, visited various places. Um, so in terms of a monk, uh, you know, it... And I think now of the term monk really being associated with a monastic living situation where you're, you're actually living with other people. But there's also the idea of a monk as more of a hermit or as a solitary person who's, uh, I mean, it actually comes from monas, from one, being one. Uh, um, so that that thought. Um, and uh, for several years, yeah, I was living very simply and I was also celibate and <laughs> mm. uh, and it's, I think a lot of people have a monk in them, you know, and it's kind of great to give that expression sometimes. Mm. And and one way of expressing that is is a kind of um, living lightly, say. So it's a vow of poverty, if you will. So you don't have anything extra uh, in the in the realm of possessions. Does yeah. does life in that state feel emptier or fuller? Well, I don't know that I'd describe it quite like that. I would say that it uh, it opens up a kind of a vulnerability in, in one. So you're not so protected. You're not going around armored. You're not necessarily so secure, you know, necessarily in knowing, you know, where you're going to sleep or what you're going to eat the next day. But then there's, uh, along with that, a kind of a, uh, an openness to possibilities, so a kind of an alertness. And a, and a recognition that uh, that I'm dependent, you know, I'm really dependent on others, and and uh, so there's a sense of uh, say being open to receiving, and also then a kind of feeling that well, I can be simply helpful too, and and I can reciprocate in in uh, very simple ways, you know, I don't uh, just by being present with someone or. Uh, Sometimes helping them in a small project, or you know, washing the dishes, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. And then, um, after some years in that world, you stepped back, as I understand it, into sort of the the world of of business and so on. You came out in in 1980, is that right? And, and yeah, well, let's just say, you know, while I was, uh, I lived mostly. At Green Gulch Farm while I was at Zen Center for mm -hmm. all of this 70s, basically. And uh, at some point I felt, okay, the structured life of living in the uh, training temple um, was uh, an experience that really supported me and helped me develop my own personal discipline. And then I felt, oh, no, it's time for me to step outside that and see what it's like. And during that, the latter part of that time also I had acquired... Um, a wife and a couple of children, <laughs> young children, and I thought, okay, acquired it's time, time. Yeah, <laughs> there's some acquisitions for you. <laughs> so, so what was it's funny it? how the, the language works? <laughs> yeah. So, so what was Maybe it? They acquired me. <laughs> <laughs> so the question is, what was it like to go from a time when you had few acquisitions, certainly material acquisitions, yeah. to to one where you had belongings and family life and all of that? You had a business. You were making income. Um, today, yeah, I mean, today you have a home, you know. Well, I had to, 
Yeah, I I had some catching up to do, you know, and I realized, oh, okay, I spent basically I spent a whole decade, even longer than that, without uh, uh, acquiring anything. So fortunately, I had friends who loaned me some things. So someone loaned me a car for a whole year when mm. I moved out, mm. and uh, and then eventually, you know, I got, I found a job and worked as a carpenter, and then and then started my own business. Partly based upon the fact that I'd been in charge of the gardens at Green Gulch, and then I'd moved into landscape design and and uh, and developed a business in that realm. Mm-hmm. So it it was necessary to say to myself, "Oh, I have some catching up to do in this world," because uh, you know I was in my thirties, and other people in their thirties already had all that set up. <laughs> uh, but then there's a way in which I felt, "Okay, this is." Just a phase. This is a phase of my life where I need I need these things. I think some people might have the idea that um, people involved in a spiritual path, people on a spiritual path who who renounce the material world, might have some very stern idea that material goods are dirty and they've cleansed themselves of them, and that therefore coming back into commerce and the material world must have been like a step down, but. I don't get that impression from you at all, that you have that black and white sort of feeling about the spiritual world and the material world or the the rat race out there, human affairs, and the higher path of monastic practice. In Zen, we remind ourselves that the material world and the spiritual world really are not two, not separate worlds. And there's a sense of a, a kind of energy, of dynamic uh, turning and interplay, and that uh, what may seem like uh, maybe two different worlds to someone just looking at it or thinking at it from the outside is is really one, and they're mutually supportive. One's say spiritual practice should also support taking good care of things uh, as things in the material so-called material world. You know, so it's a very important part of uh, of Zen practice. We'd say. We have uh, a practice of of complete stillness, of complete let, letting go of everything, and there's a complete freedom in that. And then at the same time, uh, being willing to take up uh, and be engaged in, in relationship and in response to uh, the myriad things in the phenomenal world. So there's a feeling of, of uh, really of uh, respect and appreciation. For things, is it jarring to cross between those two, those two modes, or are they of a piece for you? Can you move easily from one to the other? Well, I'd say it takes training to move easily. I think there is some. Most most people tend to get lost uh, in in the transition or resist the transition and feel that oh, there's there's some problem here. Mm. And then the whole then there's a whole different value system also that uh, is associated with that with our with our culture which is acquisitive oriented towards materials uh, we have we even have the idea of standard of living okay what's a standard of living and and we measure it in dollars and we measure it in various ways um, which is highly uh, say comparative and and also competitive and then people devalue or value themselves based on that. But 
uh, that uh, then can uh, be, uh, I say, kind of confusing, in which people then lose track of their own intrinsic value. So it takes a kind of practice, and I'd say deliberate training, to not lose track of one's intrinsic value and the the value of others and the things that you take up and use uh, that have the, have their own absolute value. You, you, you've come around directly to, to a subject I wanted to talk about today, and that is value. Um, against the background of this economic change and crisis that uh, the world is in right now, I think a lot of people are contemplating value. Uh, things that they took for granted maybe for a long time have been called into question. Things have been taken away. People are losing things. Mm-hmm. And um, that's, that's one reason I wanted to talk to you. You talk about absolute or intrinsic value as opposed to, to relative value. Mm-hmm. I assume relative value is the kind of value that the economic system, that the financial system applies to things, you know, the market value of things. What, what's the other kind of value you're talking about? Well, the absolute value is a, it may be hard to describe because it's, it's saying that each uh, thing – and you could say each person and every every item on our table, you know, a teacup has teacup value. Um, and each person has their own value uh, that's beyond comparison. Um, so there's a sense of, uh, of just simply uh, appreciating that. Um, if one appreciates it in, in oneself, you re- uh, one realizes that... Uh, the value that arises in this being comes from the support of many other beings. It doesn't just, it's not something that I necessarily, I don't create it, but I participate with it. And I participate with it uh, as I am in relationship with with other, other things and other people and other beings. Um, so it's, it's uh, appreciating the way in which things are individual, and also the way in which things are mutually interdependent. Getting back to this idea of comparative versus intrinsic or absolute value, what is that suggests to me that, that you wouldn't weigh the value of a teacup, the example you chose, versus the value of a person. You wouldn't say, gee, a person's a lot more valuable than a teacup. Or is a person more valuable than a teacup in some way? In some way, yeah, <laughs> yeah. In some way, a person is. <laughs> so now we're because comparing. we do, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there is, uh, at the same time, uh, a teacup has, uh, you know, has has its own unique value as a teacup. So it's the difference uh, because it's different because it's unique to what it is. That's its value. Mm-hmm. Um, so of course, it doesn't mean that, that we don't discern the difference between a human being and a teacup. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I wouldn't talk to a teacup in the same way I'm talking to you. <laughs> Glad to hear <laughs> uh, uh, but, uh But it means then that I have an appropriate relationship with a teacup as a teacup mm-hmm. and, uh, and completely value that. And uh, so that has its own truth. And, uh, uh, and I completely value a relationship with a human being as a as human being. So it doesn't mean that you don't discern, you know, all the unique 
you know, potentialities of each of all the many things in the world. It means paying attention to that mm-hmm. and appreciating each for what it is. Um, and for what it is, there's nothing else like it, right? <laughs> Well, as we think about you know the, the, the consequences of, of economic um, hardship, it would be easy to think that someone such as yourself, who um, has given up all his possessions, who has, as you just stated, uh, recognized that these material things are transitory and we only have them for a while, our lives are transitory, mm-hmm. um, it'd be easy to think that you could maybe shrug off all of this loss of income, loss of wealth, loss of possessions, loss of material goods. Um, How do you relate to these things that are happening out there um, that are so deeply troubling to so many people? Oh, I know. It's it's painful. It's painful. Um, And more than, I think, uh, that for a lot of people, it's it's scary. You know, there's a fear because if you base, you know, if I base my, uh, say, security or identity on, you know, what I have in the bank account, and then and then it's suddenly lost or devalued by half or something, then that changes. You know, even can change who I think I am. Um, so the more heavily that I'm, say, basing myself on that, the more that I've done that, the more painful it is to lose it. Um, if when one is, uh, you know, accumulating wealth, but then you realize, oh, it can be gone in an instant. Um, and if you really truly see that and understand that, then there's a sense in which you may be more prepared. You may be more flexible. Uh, and you know that it's not your identity that's based on it. You're not losing that. You're not losing who you are. It's, uh, it's, uh, but it may be losing, you know, losing a million dollars. But it, imp- but it, you know, everything has its impact. You know, I have now. I have many things again. I have a car. Mm-hmm. I have a. I have actually several places to live where I have a roof over my head. Um, the reason I have these things, though, is more because of connections with friends and relations, relationships, and how I offer myself to other people, rather than based on you know what I've kind of, you know, garnered and protected for myself. Right. But I know it's it's uh, frightening and painful, and for many people, just survival is a is a real issue, you know, and the loss of something. From a Buddhist point of view, is an opportunity to understand the nature of change, the nature of of the impermanence of life, and so even though it's a painful teaching, there's value in that, and there's a value then in understanding that this body doesn't last forever, you know. And then there's the issue of concern for other people. Um, a person who is facing dire straits might be willing or or to 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 suffer him or herself but what if they have kids relatives friends that hurts even more sometimes i mean a lot of times that's the yeah. people you really worry about the, like the old blues song you know i don't mind dying but i hate to leave my children crying yeah that's it exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. and and so i'm just wondering what does zen have to say to that a lot of Zen practice, I'm sure, results in a bit of detachment 
from one's own welfare, you know, a kind of distance on one's own selfish concerns. But what about the concerns of others? Do you detach from those also? Or, you know, given the compassionate part of, of Buddha's practice, the emphasis on compassion for others. Yeah, it's big. Yeah. Uh, major emphasis in, in the vow that uh, people take in this tradition of practice is for the welfare of all beings. Um, and the welfare of all beings is understood at many levels. One is helping, you know, the physical health and well-being, and then helping in the emotional health and well-being, and then eventually to the fully full development of wisdom and compassion and understanding the true nature of uh, the Buddha mind that we all we all have. So it's. It's interesting then in that context to say, okay, now how am I not, uh, say, in the grip of fear or emotional uh, entanglements? To what extent does my, uh, you know, my my attachments to things or my wishes for things or my desires or my fears uh, contribute to some distortion? rather than just being able to see clearly, you know, what's needed, what's the best under these circumstances, which keep changing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where we really, in, in Zen practice, really put a lot of attention, you know, to see, you know, how how is my particular view skewed by some, uh, you know, habits of perception and particular kinds of wishes, desires, or fears, and karmic tendencies that come from the past and how much can I let go of that so that I can see clearly and respond mm. you were one of the the five um, monks and members of the Zen Center community who uh, in July of 2008 fought the wildfires that had surrounded the Tassajara monastery you, st- you stayed behind you five we stayed behind yeah. and, and saved essentially the, <laughs> the monastery that, there's that word fought the fire I don't know, is, 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 is that a bad phrase do you think fighting fire I don't think it's a bad phrase but I don't think it's quite the way we looked at it uh-huh fighting the fire but I thought okay there's an element of that but it's it 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 tends to have a a kind of a distancing uh, adversarial relationship you know and I thought I thought the fire is uh, also just just an element, part of our world that we include hmm. and uh, appreciate. So when you were spraying so water we're meeting, on those flames, what were you doing? <laughs> so meeting, just meeting the fire, <laughs> meeting and quenching the fire, giving it, giving it some, uh, giving it some guidance. <laughs> go so, go so away. You can go over there, but don't cross this line over here. You know, and, and I and I do that with my friends too. You know, it's like okay, I say please. You know, right now you're kind of impinging on uh, something here. Can you give me a little more space? You know, it's actually more of that feeling I think, and so. Uh, and so we weren't campaigning against the fire, but we were defending. Mm-hmm. We were defending you know, Tassajara right. structures, buildings, and taking care of ourselves. You know, right in the face of it. And, and you spoke about fear just a moment ago. So were you scared during that time, as as the flames, you know, sort of converged on the compound from multiple directions? That's a, you know, I, we've had conversations among the five of us, you know, who, uh, subsequent to that event and. And there was a range, you know. Some people were really more uh, 
uh, let's say experience that ad- adrenaline rush of fear and and I was I was I know I had a- adrenaline coming up and whether it was fight or flight <laughs> or whether it was just a kind of an intensity I knew okay I really need to engage with this this is serious you know uh I didn't I don't think of it so much as as fear uh for most of that time but but it was definitely a sense this is this is uh, a lot of work to do right now, mm-hmm. you know. So there's a real feeling of intensity. Intensity. Yeah. Has the the, the current economic situation, the the uh, what we're calling a crisis, has it affected what goes on in the Zen community here, uh, either in terms of your internal activities? Uh, yeah, it has. Or, yeah. or in the way that you engage with the outside community and society and at large, helping people, counseling people, talking to people. You know, how has it? Yeah, it's well. It's affected us internally in um, reviewing our budget <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, looking at how we can actually live a more frugal uh, life. Uh, has to do. It's affected our diet. You know, we've 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 trimmed back on some things that are you know maybe more expensive. And looking at, we've really looked at you know exactly you know what's what's our balance. Uh, um, I'm guessing you don't have an exactly um, indulgent lifestyle as it no, is. No, we don't. No, <laughs> we, we haven't. Uh, so what are you cutting back on? Well, you know, how many, uh, say, how many times a week do we serve uh, eggs, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, how many times, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and paying attention to trans you know how much money we spend on transportation how many trips do we make here and there from from Tassajara to the city and back and you know so there are lots of ways we've been doing this for years and partly because we want to live lightly on the land and be ecologically conscious but uh frankly i'd say that the financial realities also uh, support our intention to do that uh and uh then you know how do we how do we talk to other people? I know that people come uh partly to uh, all of our places um with a with a need for say how to settle uh, down in the midst of their uh, anxiety about uh, their life, and so this practice is offered, and then sometimes there are particular questions, more particular questions now about, okay, how, how am I going to cope with, um, you know, my loss of my job? You know, What sort of answers do you, do, do you give? Or what um, sort of responses do you give? Well, first thing is to listen and to get to know a little bit what's what's the situation. And then sometimes... Sometimes we, you know, I might even have some specific recommendation. Uh, oh, here's an idea. Here's, you have these various talents that you haven't even explored, and now there's there's a chance to step back and look at. Okay, there, there are other possibilities that. Uh, so there's that. Always uh, looking for potential opportunities in the midst of loss. Also, there's there's uh, I'm counseling people that it's okay to. To feel loss, it's okay to feel grief. It's okay to feel that your your life is uh, dis, you know destabilized and coming apart. Um, so now, right now, you know, how do you find your composure in the middle of that? 
And so there are various practices, meditative practices and things that might just be specifically suggested and applied to. Mm. How do you deal with the, with uh, taking care of the tension that builds up in your body, you know, when, when, uh, and then the tendency to oh, want to blame someone else or, you know, this or that to see, well, that's maybe not so helpful. Um, so anyway, there's a lot, there are a lot of, uh, I'd say teaching opportunities in the midst of loss and, and, uh, and Zen practice and Buddhism has a lot to offer there. And your co-abbot Paul Haller has actually done one or more workshops on the economy? He, he did a one-day one, uh, one day workshop uh, that I actually haven't had a chance to talk to him about, you know, how okay. did it go and what happened and what was, his, what, what, what was he offering there. Was this for members uh, of the, the, the Buddhist no, community or for the public in general? The public, yeah. Oh. yeah. Well, I'll have to talk to him. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Steve, I just say as a last thing, are there issues or thoughts that have come to mind that I haven't, elicited, you know, with my questions. Well, um, I'm sure I, I can start. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But, uh, you know, you uh, you began by, uh, uh, I think, using the term Buddhist economics. And as soon as you said that, I thought of the of the book uh, Small is, is Beautiful, which was E.F. Schumacher. Actually, he visited here a number of times in the 70s. And, uh, but the notion of... Um, of uh, taking care of, uh, say, what is sustainable, having, having an idea of sustainable living that is in balance with the whole environment that 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 you're in. And that's very important, and I think uh, it's hard for us even to see what that is. So I, I think to understand uh, that the whole world is wealth, you know, um, and. Uh, to appreciate it as a kind of a gift uh, is a, a fundamentally uh, healthy kind of orientation, right? To say, okay, everything is given, and that includes what's not given. So every, what is also not given is also given. So, um, and so that means uh, that sometimes, uh, you know, there's a practice of restraint where you realize, oh, that would be, it would be too much, you know. It would be too much for me to, uh, you know, assume that all the water that comes out of the spring is mine, right? Oh, this water goes to all these different forms of life. And so just to take what's, you know, what's in balance, take care of oneself, but also what's in balance with the other forms of life that, that also, you know, are depending on that. And and that we're all uh, interde- interdependently participating together. It's an educational process, and I just invite everyone to be attentive to that. You have on your wall uh, various works of art, so in a, in an Eastern, obviously Eastern tradition, uh, with nice brushwork. And one of them says, "Buddhist math: two equals one equals zero. Well, we're, talk- <laughs> we're talking Buddhist economics here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Tell yeah. me about that one. <laughs> Um, well, two, uh, you can look at it in various ways. There's, there's, uh, two as the world of duality. There's you and me. Uh, there's me and my money. <laughs> or there's me and my lack of money. 
And uh, and then when you put it together, there's me and my lack of money. That's actually one thing, you know. There's you and me. Uh, we're actually one thing. We take everything in the room together, which it, we can see it as one. And so uh, it's kind of then it's kind of a misunderstanding to think, oh, there's you and there's me. Us to separate, you know. So it includes that notion of of separate, of two-ness, and also concludes the notion of oneness. And then ultimately, when you take two-ness and oneness together, you can, there's a, and this is, you know, say a state of mind in which you realize that there are no things. There's no things. Fundamentally, there is um, nothing that we can say except everything that we say is, is a kind of a construction or a creation of our own consciousness our own conceptualization. So to say two or to say one is uh, it's possible to lose track of the emptiness of everything. Um, so there you have zero. It's good to come back to zero from time to time. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for this conversation. Yeah, thanks for your questions. And good luck with, with the, this investigation. Yeah. Steve Stuckey is co-abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center. This is the 7th Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, and I will be right back. I'm back with the 7th Avenue Project, and um, for part two of today's show, the wealth-health connection. Did you see the 1998 Robin Williams movie, Patch Adams? Me neither. But I did meet the real Patch Adams, the humanitarian doctor that Robin Williams played in the film. And uh, here's how he described himself. I'm a clown that is a physician. Those are both instruments of political activism. I am looking for a world where no one alive can remember what the word war means. Patch travels around providing medical and comic relief to the poor and needy. He doesn't have an eye patch, but he does have a handlebar mustache, a long gray ponytail, and a predilection for baggy clown pants and day-glow shirts. He's maybe six foot four, and believe me, he stands out in a crowd. He certainly stuck out at uh, San Quentin State Prison, where I met him. He was going to speak to a class of inmates. I was going to interview him afterwards, so I tagged along. As we walked across the prison yard to the classroom, some of the prisoners recognized him and shouted friendly greetings. Some came up to shake his hand. Once in the class, Patch spoke to about 40 guys about things like social justice, nonviolence, health care reform, and his own troubled youth. He told us how, after multiple suicide attempts, he wound up in a mental hospital, then vowed to spend the rest of his life making himself and other people happy. At one point, one of the inmates asked him where the clowning comes in. Patch turned away from the class. He applied some props to his face, and then when he turned back to look at us, he was a gaping, toothless idiot with fake snot dangling from his nose. He continued to talk like that, and we all cracked up. Hey, call me easily amused, but it was funny. At the end, he invited the inmates up for hugs, and many of them accepted. 
You might say the Patch Adams approach is um, pie in the sky meets pie in the face, or unreconstructed 60s utopianism mixed with goofy guerrilla theater. You may call him a dreamer, if you like, or a radical or a socialist. I don't think he'd mind at all. He is completely serious about reforming health care, which he thinks should be universal and very cheap, if not downright free. And he's set out to show how it can be done with his foundation, the Gesundheit Institute. Right now they're working on building a free hospital and clinic in Pocahontas County, West Virginia. Here's Patch Adams. The most expensive thing in the U.S. is health care. So we wanted to take the most expensive thing and give it away. We wanted to eliminate this idea that, that it's a business, that you, that you owe something when you get care. We want people to be excited. They belong to something called community. So it makes sense in that system that you would care for others, that the people would care for you. So we're going to care for our hospital until the community wakes up to it caring for the hospital. Well, who pays in the meantime? Well, believe it or not, for 38 years I pay to be a doctor. How does that work, though? Money has to come from somewhere, doesn't it? Well, in the 12 years we saw patients, each person went out and made a little money. They had to get $250 together a month. You know, a doctor can do that in the morning and have the rest of the month off. What I did is I went to people and said, look, I need $3,000 a year for my wife and I to serve humanity. And so people would give me $3,000 a year. So people did different things those 12 years. Since then, when we closed our hospital and now have been 26 years raising money to build our fantasy hospital, I've worked an outside job, and the money from that job pays for everything so that no one else has to work. What's that job? It's evolved. For uh, eight years, I worked at the only federal mental hospital, St. Elizabeth's Hospital. And I did four nights on, ten days off, four nights on, ten days off. And so I had every day off since I'm not a big sleeper. And I, eight nights a month I, I was at the hospital. After that I started lecturing. And before the movie I was making two to $300,000 a year lecturing and performing. And since the movie about a million dollars a year. And all that gets donated into our our nonprofit, and then we take out what we need. Long term, or maybe in the case of, of um, similar enterprises that don't have a celebrity at their center who can pull in a million bucks well, a year, yeah. how, how do you finance something like well, this? If you take the old community hospital model, okay, that why we got rid of that is really a crime. Community hospital model. In the old days, wealthy people get together, have a fancy fundraiser, and and poor people would do bake sales, and that money would take care of the hospital and make sure it took care of the community. If we care was free during that time, no, uh, overnight in the hospital could be forty, forty-five dollars, etc. And there was free care, um, I'm sure. The model, the easiest model, is one that relates to what we're doing today. The average family of four is paying $12,000 a year for health insurance. $12,000 a year. Let's round it off to $10,000 a year. Okay? Now, if you took 10,000 families and they put that $10,000 away for a year, can you do the math? Uh, 
million. There we go. Yeah. Okay, now that's in one year. So in our hospital model, 40 to 50 bills a hospital debt free. You do that same $10,000 two or three years, then you have an endowment, you never have to do it again. If the 10,000 families kept putting in $10,000, then they have $100 million to work with to take care of their their family. And, of course, the 10,000 families live in an area where X number of families can't afford it, and they it's just all a gift because every family knows they're safest when everyone is safe. They're, there's less violence and and hunger and all the problems if everyone is cared for. So the, the people can't believe that math. They cannot believe. I, I tell the same people. I said, take a 200-unit th- a high-rise building in Washington, D.C. Let's say you're spending $1,000 a month rent. For $400 a month, those people could own the building. And then you have the bottom third office space, the middle third common space, a basketball court, a bridge room, TV rooms, and the top third are bedrooms. So, And then you have X number of cars, because everyone doesn't need a car, and you sign up for the car, and before you know it, you're living at one quarter, one-eighth of what it costs to live, and you're much more, there's no nursing homes. In the middle part, you're, you're caring for people. We're just talking math. We're talking basic math here. From 71 to 84, we opened our home to everybody. We had 20 adults and our children living in a large six-bedroom house. Okay, 20 adults and their children in a large six-bedroom house. We had 500 to 1,000 people in our home each month with 5 to 50 overnight guests a night. We did that 12 years. 3,000 of the 15,000 people came to our home had prior severe mental health histories, and we never disliked a patient enough to give them psychiatric medication. We loved our patients. We integrated medicine with performing arts and arts and crafts and agriculture, nature, education, recreation, social service. You didn't have to be a patient. You couldn't tell who was a patient. You couldn't tell anything. It was friends dropping in on friends. So we learned to be farmers. We put on plays. We made movies. We... We didn't. We were a community. Did you dispense actual medicine also yeah. there? No. Yeah, we did. Actual, real doctors. You find out when you're, you know, my initial interview with a new adult patient was four hours long. So you know the person a lot better than a 7.8-minute visit. And so you you get them to hang out, maybe help midwife them starting to exercise and take better care of themselves and and so that they need doctors less and that you can... You know them or you can have them spend the night and observe them so you don't have to order something or do something because you can observe or or these sorts of things. You must talk, I imagine, at medical schools to up-and-coming doctors and, you know, try to... I've spoken at 90 of our medical schools, many of them more than one time, and medical schools in 68 countries. I've corresponded with medical students from over 100 countries. What do you tell them? We do month-long electives for medical students on humanism and medicine. Medical students come from all over the world to them, since no medical school in the world teaches compassion. What do you tell the students in in these classes, in these uh, appearances? Well, it's less what we tell than we hear what they want. Who? What is their image of a doctor? 
how are they going to reach for those images of a doctor? What are they? There are great readings, whether it's the classical William Carlos Williams and William Osler and Francis Peabody. There, there we we have texts that we recommend for discussion, and we try to uh, help them find their compassion itself. Help them display it and be vulnerable in front of people and and fall in love with humanity. Uh, you must. Uh have influenced young or or maybe established doctors to change what they're doing to try new things um can you tell me a few stories you know whether it's from hearing a lecture reading one of my books which are translated into a number of languages or or seeing the movie you know i've had people who said i saw the movie 20 times and i and I went and started this clinic or this orphanage or I started to be an honest mechanic or there literally every day, every single day, whether it's on the phone or in the mail, I hear somebody say how interfacing with our work, which is why we do it, which is why I was here today, that one can make a difference. Ideas can be electrifying for people. How about people in the medical profession? What uh, influence have you managed to have there? Oh, it, you know, it's impossible to know because I only get the tip of the iceberg. As I said, I probably have at least 40,000 letters from health professionals who say how the interface with our work did this. So it's... You know, I can. I remember hearing because of the movie. Somebody heard me talk twenty years ago. They're up in Canada, and then they implemented. They were medical student. Then they implemented something at their medical school, and then it's become something that's in all the medical schools of Canada. And the only reason I knew is because after the movie, they contacted me and said, "You can never ever know. You can't when you're walking down the street." I mean, what's so true about life? Kindness is. That old butterfly effect, I mean, it's kind of corny. But the truth is, you don't know when you walk down the street and your eyes meet somebody and you're friendly and kind, say hello or smile or nod or something. You don't know if you didn't save that that person's life. Because huge numbers of people are walking around saying, if no one shows me any affection today, I'm going to kill myself. Many suicidal people tell me that. So you don't know. And what it does for you in your own immune system to be pleasant, to, to be day-to-day disgustingly, revoltingly sweet and kind to people. And, you know, a, a healthcare delivery is in the toilet all over the world. Hierarchy squeezes the life out of the ability to be a compassionate hospital model. The hospital... Builders of Austria, Vamed, they have three or four hundred hospitals all over the world, you know, giant corporation. And they suddenly contacted us, the the heads of this uh, conglomerate contacts us because they suddenly woke up one day and say, we hate being in our hospitals. And somebody said, well, read this book. This guy knows how to help us. And so we are negotiating with them. Which book? My first book, Gesundheit, I have two books, Gesundheit and House Calls. Gesundheit is uh, roughly our history and philosophy of care and, and our plans, and House Calls is how to be a fabulous person going out loving the world. If you had the ear of physicians right now, if you had a direct line to 
all the physicians out there, and you had a few minutes or a minute or so to say something to them, what would you say? You know, you're asking too much for a soundbite answer to a person who's a thoughtful person. And I, I would recommend reading Arthur Kleinman's The Illness Narratives and Eric Castle. These are famous physicians that are well-known. His uh, The Nature of Suffering of Eric Castle. And to say, go for your fantasy. There, uh, There's a website, The Ideal Medical Practice. There's, uh, I would say, with your MD, you can do it any way you want to if you can dare to do it with your MD, but that we are in the unique position as physicians to go back to the shamanic role of a doctor where they looked at their whole tribe and tried to talk to the health of their tribe and get involved in educational systems, teaching love in school, K through 12, one hour a day as a thoughtfulness, not as a feeling. I mean, what I've said about re-resurrecting the old community hospital and local and and, and uh, stimulating cities to become the first loving city in, the, in history, to stimulate uh, garden cities and to, you know, if, if you think about wanting to dramatically cut the cost of the people, by the people, for the people, have, have the the government serving us, not the one serving the corporate world, to create 10 nerd centers, which would be full of biochemists and physiologists and herbalists and engineers, and that these 10 nerd centers would make the medicines and all the hospital equipment for us as a gift to the nation. So they wouldn't have to lie, in, as the pharmaceuticals company do, to a severe degree and own the medical journals and lie and bullshit because they're not going to make any money from it. They're just making medicines as a service to the people. And they have all these nice paying jobs as nerds. And they have these nerd centers with all the equipment to make artificial arms. And instead of them costing... You know, forty-five dollars, which is whatever the traffic will bear. They they cost a hundred and nineteen dollars because that's what it costs to make this arm. I'd like to ask you. Um, you have said that you make about a million a year in speaking engagements and appearances. What you do with that money and how you live, um, I think it's just an interesting case study in in wealth. Well, I want to get the best for my buck, so I donate it all. It all goes straight to a donation to our work, and it takes care of us so that we can do as much work as we possibly can. I'm Clearly, the idea that wealth is stuff and money and power is, is a hollow wealth. It doesn't, it doesn't have any health value. Health... Uh, the, I mean, clearly the most important thing in life are friends. It's an extremely rare person that will not admit that their their greatest richness are their friends. And you can go down a list of things that are wealth. To maintain a sense of wonder and curiosity all your life, the impossibility, the inconceivability of boredom, ever having one second of your time in your life simply by polishing off your, your sense of wonder and curiosity. The, the wealth, you know, a library to a reader is, there. There's, there's no bank in the world that has anything on a library, on my library. That, uh, so that's just the, the corruption of a value system based on money and power over to define 
clearly a most meaningless sense of wealth to be the highest possible wealth. If money were wealth, then when you got a billion, you, you would have enough. But when you have five billion and then you want ten billion, clearly there's no enough in money. One friend is enough. And I consider myself unbelievably wealthy. I, I, I gained 45 new friends in that room in that school that were, in the, in the best of their ability, they loved me. They loved me. And huge numbers of people with economic wealth can't be sure anyone loves them. I've got plenty of nothing, and nothing's plenty for me. I've got my gal, got my song, got heaven the whole day long. Folks with plenty of plenty got a lock on their door. Afraid somebody's gonna rob them while they're out making more. What fun! It's, you know, a mayfly lives for 12 hours. And if it was a human, they would be going, 11.59, 11.58. Of that million that you take in a year, roughly, what's your lifestyle like? Well, I'm on the road 300 days a year, so I fly here, fly there. I'm way over-cared for. I mean, I live a very distorted life where I can fly. I mean, my, the jobs hire me, so they pay my airfare. They put me up in a hotel and uh, to take care of me. So I live, uh, I mean, for most people it would be a nightmarish life, all the travel, but I get to read 200 books a year, so I don't even notice that I'm traveling, all right? I, I work, I've done as many as 11 lectures in a day. I work all the time. I'm a 7 a.m. to 3 a.m. person, that's me. And, you know, I don't have any life insurance or health insurance. I actually don't have any backup if somehow something happened. I don't have a system to fall back on by the current economic system, but I have love. Do so you have much stuff? Stuff? In ownership, no. But, you know, my, my wealth or photographs, you know, mostly memories. I've kept a daily journal for 39 years, every single day, didn't miss a one. And... uh the fact that I get to go clown in refugee camps and get to take love to suffering, that's probably my most selfish wealth right there. That the privilege to, to go, my, my children do it, my brother does it, and that, that I get to go to suffering and relieve suffering as my job. Are you a guy who gives away basically all your money? Are you, do you live really simply or, uh, you know, I mean, when you're not trying uh, to Well, the th you know, I live in my office. Uh, my brother is in the kitchen. Uh, it's a townhouse. It's sealing the floor books. There are no books in West Virginia where we're building, so we want to make sure we have a Whopper library. And I, you know, if I left Gesundheit, I, I don't have anything. Gesundheit owns the car I drive. Ge where we're building the hospital, Gesundheit owns that land. I have... Here, ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you something. You learn to be an interesting, friendly person, and you will own everything, too. It's all yours. If, 
you know, I'm offered the world because I'm a nice person. And it's a lot bigger offering at 63 than it was at 20 because I've been a nice person for 45 years, intentionally a loving person. And so every house is my house. You know, you don't have to own a boat, just love a boat owner. Good luck with that boat owner. That was Patch Adams, the real one. His website is patchadams.org. And next week on the 7th Avenue Project, another person who took the road less traveled by, or when he took the well-trafficked road, he did it in a manner that most of us aren't accustomed to. And I'm going to stick my neck out here and say that this is an interview well worth your tuning in for. So do so, won't you? Until then, I'm Robert Polly. Beyond then, who knows? But I do know that this is Central Coast Public Radio KUSP, streaming and podcasting at KUSP.org.